0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. One of the four gospel accounts we have of the life of Jesus It's the shortest of the four gospels. It has fewer stories than the others, but it gives us lots of details, so it's a great book. That's Mark 7, and we'll be reading the first 23 verses. Let me go ahead and read that for us today. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are also... And there are many other customs they they received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands." "...abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition." He also said to them, "...you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, "...honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, "...if anyone tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, an offering devoted to God." You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house, away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts... Sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning. We praise you for the love that you have lavished upon us that we might be called your children. We praise you that you're unchanging and unfailing, Lord. We ask now for your spirit to be upon us during this time, that your word would be proclaimed faithfully, and that you would awaken our ears and open our hearts to all you have to teach us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, please be seated. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, my family and I spent part of this summer in Asia, and while we were there, we had to take a trip to visit Singapore. But unfortunately, it ended up not working out. But I really wanted to visit Singapore. Singapore is known for being a modern, developed city with great food. It's also well known for being really, really clean. But in Asia especially, Singapore is also known because they have an unusual law. It's illegal to buy or sell chewing gum in Singapore. This is a real enforced law. There's literally no gum when you walk into 7-Eleven. I don't think it's strictly illegal to chew it if you brought some in with you for personal use, but it's been illegal to sell it since 1992. In response to this ban, the Wrigley Chewing Gum Company of Chicago, Illinois lobbied the US government to include the issue in trade talks, and as a result, Singapore agreed to allow nicotine gum and other prescription gums. But to get these, you have to go to a doctor or a pharmacist, and they're required to keep a list of who bought their gum. In Singapore, gum is a controlled substance. Now, this law seems kind of weird. Like, who would make a law like this? Did they have some kind of traumatic gum experience as a child, and now they're using their power to get revenge on gum? Laws like this just seem strange. But to be honest, if you read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you might feel like some of the laws that God gave to Israel seem a little odd as well. For example, did you know that Israel is commanded in three separate passages, you must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? What a strange prohibition. Or Leviticus 19.19 And also, Deuteronomy 22.11, Israelites are forbidden from wearing clothing made from more than one type of material. I'll be honest, this shirt I'm wearing right now is violating that law. I'm probably not the only one here breaking it. So next week, we're starting a sermon on the Ten Commandments, the most famous portion Of the law of Moses. So this week I want to consider some questions that we might have about the Old Testament law. Why do Christians seem to follow some of the laws of Moses but not others? Or for that matter, why do we follow any of them at all? Hasn't Jesus coming affected the way we relate to the law? These are tough questions we want to think about today. And in the passage we're looking at today, we see that we can learn a lot about the law from the mouth of our Savior himself. Jesus speaks three times in this passage. First to the Pharisees and the scribes, then to the crowd, and then to the disciples. And in each of these sections, we learn something important about the law. Christ is our key to understanding the law. So when we look at this passage, first we want to consider how the Pharisees related to the law. Next, we want to look at how Christ relates to the law and finally we'll see how we relate to the law before we jump into the passage though i want to make some distinctions that will help us understand the passage more clearly when we talk about the law of moses we're talking about various laws god gave moses for the nation of israel which we find in exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy And the Ten Commandments are, of course, part of this law. And when we analyze the law given by Moses, we actually see several different types of laws here, laws that can be put into categories. Some of the law is moral, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, laws about what is right and wrong. But not all the law is like that. Some of the law is civil law. The nation of Israel was not just a religious group. They were a nation which needed a civil government. And some of the laws Moses gave to Israel are civil laws. They're doing the job of governing an earthly kingdom because Israel was an earthly kingdom. For example, Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 to 20 provides instructions for going out to war. When you're raising up an army, who should go? Who should stay home? Or Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 to 4, it talks about the procedure. When you see someone else's cows wandering about in your neighborhood, what should you do? What was the procedure? Or Exodus 21:16 tells us that a person who kidnaps someone should be put to death. These laws are great for us to read, we can learn from them, but these things were necessary because the kingdom of Israel was an earthly kingdom and it needed an earthly government to handle such things. They aren't matters for individuals. We as individuals don't raise armies to go to war, the government does that. And if you come home from church today and you find a cow on your lawn, can you keep it? Yeah. That's a matter for the state of Florida to decide. <laughs> And even with something clearly wicked, like kidnapping, if you meet a kidnapper, don't kill them. Call the police. Let the civil authorities implement justice. The civil law is there because Israel needed not only moral guidance, they also needed a civil government. These laws are for the kingdom of Israel, an earthly kingdom. But Christ said, my kingdom is not of this earth. So we can read these laws and learn from them. God doesn't like kidnapping. If you find something that doesn't belong to you, you should give it back. But these government laws are no longer in effect for us because the church is not a government. This setup was unique to the earthly kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. So I mentioned the moral law and the civil law. There's one more part of the law which we call the ceremonial law. This would include laws about sacrifices which you can read about in Leviticus and Numbers also laws about being clean or unclean some animals were considered unclean if you ate them you would be unclean also other things could make you unclean as well like touching a dead body or having a skin disease so in our passage today christ isn't really talking about the civil law but as i mentioned already we don't follow that because the kingdom of christ is not of this earth But the ceremonial law and the moral law are both talked about in this passage. So let's look at what Jesus has to say about them. Let's start by looking at how the Pharisees and scribes related to the law. You see, they loved rules. See in our passage that they're unhappy because Jesus' disciples weren't playing along. They're not washing their hands when they come back from the market. So they're not following the rules. And notice that the rules they're talking about here are not the law of Moses. It's the tradition of the elders, mentioned in verses five, eight, 13. You see, they were so excited about keeping the ceremonial law that they would debate about what you had to do precisely in order to follow it. We even see remnants of this today. Do you remember the law I just mentioned, you must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? There are Jewish people today who, because of this law, never eat meat and dairy products together. No cheeseburgers. And some houses actually have two sinks, one where you wash the dairy dishes and one where you wash the meat dishes, traditions that seem to go beyond what the original law commanded out of a desire to be very careful to follow the law. But Jesus is not impressed with the Pharisees' rule rules. In fact, his response is scathing, especially when you look at the scriptures that he's quoting. In verses 6 and 7, when he quotes Isaiah 29, he's quoting a prophecy of judgment. He's saying, hey, this is you. And then he quotes from Exodus 20, 12, from the Ten Commandments, where it says, honor your father and your mother. But that's not the whole quote, is it? The commandment comes with a promise right honor your father and your mother why so that you may have a long life in the land the lord your god is giving you jesus quotes the commandment but he doesn't quote the promise because they're not going to receive the promise instead he quotes the penalty for breaking it with these old testament quotations jesus is telling them you're not getting the promise you're getting judgment This is the same gentle and lowly Jesus who eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, who's a friend of sinners. But here, with the religious leaders, we see him preaching judgment. What is it that upsets Jesus here? Well, the Pharisees have made up all these rules to make sure they're keeping the ceremonial law so, so carefully, but keeping these laws only made you clean on the outside. But what about the inside? What about the moral law? And Jesus calls them out on this in verses 9 to 13 by showing them a specific example of their problem, the tradition of korban. So this goes back to the fifth commandment, which Jesus quotes in verse 10, which says to honor your father and your mother. And that meant providing for them when they were too old to earn income. But the Pharisees had come up with a system that said that instead of providing money for your parents, you could instead dedicate that money to the temple. It was basically saying, instead of supporting your parents, here's another option. If you do this, we'll count it as following the law. What Jesus is condemning here is a following of the ceremonial law, which shows people how clean you are externally, but basically ignoring the moral law, which is about their inward state. Imagine that the check engine light comes on in your car. So you have a friend who tinkers a bit on cars. He has a machine that plugs into your car and tells you what's wrong. So you call him up. He looks at it and says, all right, you're good to go. I solved the problem. How? Did you fix the engine? Did you fix the problem that was causing the light to go on? And he says, no, I just disconnected the check engine light. It should never come on again. this guy has not fixed your car. This guy has eliminated the symptom but done nothing about the underlying disease. He's cleaning up the external evidence instead of addressing the internal reality. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were so concerned about offering sacrifices and washing their hands and being careful not to touch Gentiles. They were so concerned about these external things but they were happy to nullify. That's the word Jesus uses in verse 13, to nullify or invalidate or set aside the moral law given in the fifth commandment. They only cared about the outside. And we see this theme of internal versus external continuing throughout this passage. It's something we need to consider in ourselves as well. Are we more concerned about what people think of us than we are about the true state of our hearts. Do we care more about the fact that the check engine light is on than we do about the fact that the engine itself is messed up? Are we more focused on the external than the internal? Jesus is telling us that being obedient is an internal state, not an external one. And the Pharisees didn't get that. The Pharisees' relationship to the law was to use it to clean their outsides but not to clean their insides. But what about Jesus? How did he relate to the law? Well, we know from Hebrews 4 and 2 Corinthians five twenty one that Jesus never sinned, but kept the entire law perfectly. But also, the work that Jesus did affects the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law regulated the sacrificial system, and defined what things were clean and unclean, and what people were clean and unclean. Now, under the law of Moses, being unclean wasn't sinful. It's not sinful to have a skin disease. And if a person dies, Somebody has to go bury them. So if you became unclean somehow, it wasn't the end of the world. You just had to go through some cleansing process before the Sabbath, before you could participate in temple life. This was the washing that the Pharisees' tradition was based on. And the ceremonial laws had several purposes. The need to sacrifice, and the idea of being clean or unclean, especially before you go into the temple, was meant to reinforce that God is holy. And we are not. And there's a huge gap there. God is clean. And if we are to approach him, we need to become clean. We need to have our sins removed. That's what the ceremonial law points to. So the ceremonial law shows our separation from God, but it also shows the separation of Israelites from others. The practice of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk was probably a pagan religious ritual of the Canaanite people. The Israelites were forbidden from doing this because they were separate. And the food laws especially enforced the separation of Israel from other nations. Non-Jewish people ate forbidden fruit foods, right? They weren't circumcised. They were unclean. So interacting with them would make you unclean as well. That's what the Pharisees are driving at with their concern about hand washing. The disciples had just been to the market. The Pharisees wanted them to come and wash the Gentile uncleanness off their hands. These laws separated Jews from Gentiles. And this separation could also be seen metaphorically, like the command not to mix different materials in your clothing is a metaphor for Israel not mixing with the Canaanite people. And some animals are clean and some are unclean as a metaphor for some People being clean and some unclean. Do you remember the story in Acts 10? Peter has a vision of the unclean animals and a voice says, what God has made clean, do not call impure. Later in the same chapter, Peter applies this not just to food, but to people. He understood that the food loss being canceled meant that separation from Gentiles was now canceled. The ceremonial law was there to remind Israel of their separation from God and their separation from other nations. So in our passage, the second time Jesus speaks, in verses 14 and 15, he's actually doing something very radical. He's not throwing out the categories of clean and unclean. Those categories go into eternity. We see it mentioned in Revelation 21. What he is doing is radically redefining what clean and unclean mean. It's no longer about what you eat. It's no longer about if you touch a Gentile. It's no longer about offering sacrifices. It's no longer about these things because Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. The law was there to remind us of the problem of our alienation from God and from each other. But Christ, in his death and resurrection, solved the problem of our alienation from God and from each other. Hebrews 10 tells us we no longer need to sacrifice because Christ was our perfect sacrifice. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are no longer alienated from God or from our fellow man because Christ has reconciled us. The the ceremonial law showed us the problem and pointed us to the solution, Jesus. Imagine, Imagine you're a young lady who just got married and your husband The love and desire and joy of your heart gets called off to war. Think of the longing that would fill your heart. You would want to go, you would want to see him so badly just to be with him. You desperately wish that the war would end so he would come home. If you have a photograph of him, you probably carry that photograph everywhere with you, looking, looking at it every day. You show it to people. You talk about him with anyone who will listen. You'd miss him so much, you'd probably even talk to the photo as if he were there with you. And when the day arrives, he comes home and runs to embrace you, but instead of hugging him, you take out the photo and hug the photo. And when you meet people, instead of introducing your husband who's standing right next to you, you show them the photo. And when you tell him something, instead of telling him, you pull out the photo and talk to it instead. That would be ridiculous, right? You'd be talking to the shadow when the real person has already arrived. Brothers and sisters, this is why we don't follow the ceremonial law anymore today. This is why you can eat pork or wear polyester cotton blends or have a cheeseburger. The ceremonial law was pointing to our need for Christ and the work Christ would do. Christ fulfilled it. So for us to follow the ceremonial law today would be to run after the shadow when the reality is already here. That's why we don't follow it today. Yeah. We haven't chosen arbitrarily which laws to follow and which not to follow. We understand that the civil law was for, the, for a nation, not for the church, and that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. So to recap where we are, the Pharisees' relationship to the law was to focus on the external while, while ignoring the moral law. Christ's relationship to the law is to keep the entire law on our behalf, and to fulfill the ceremonial law, what about us, though? What is our relationship to the law? If we're not bound by the civil or ceremonial law, what about the moral law? Do we still have to follow it? Well, let's look at the end of our passage. Jesus repeats for the disciples what he told the crowd earlier, that being clean is not truly about following ceremonial law, because eating a pork chop doesn't really make your heart unclean. But then in verse 22 and 23, he lists a number of things that do, in fact, make a person unclean. And look at the list for a bit. Theft, murder, adultery, and the list goes on. These are moral issues. The list shows us that even though we no longer follow the civil law or the ceremonial law, the moral law remains, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm throwing out the moral law. That's not important. It is important. And you can see a number of the Ten Commandments here, especially from the second table, because the Ten Commandments are the cornerstone of the moral law. And read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expounds heavily on the moral law in questions like murder, adultery, divorce, truth-telling. If we follow Jesus, we have to accept his teaching that the moral law is not obsolete and that we should still be following it but I want you to notice something here. Jesus tells us in verse 20 that the things that come out of us defile us, the things that come out of people's hearts. So Jesus is getting at something here in a subtle way. Later, Paul picks up on this and explains it in more detail in Galatians 2. Jesus is telling us that the moral law is still important, but he's not saying that we are saved by keeping it. Look at the words in verse 21. These wicked things come out of people's hearts. Our actions are not what saves us. Rather, they're an indication of what's in our hearts. We keep the law because our hearts are filled with love and gratitude to God. And with joy for what the Savior has done for us. We keep the law because Christ said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will do what I command. We don't follow them because we're afraid of his wrath. We follow them because we love him. And we express our love for him through our actions. And this is actually what the law was always meant to be. If your Bible is open, flip over to Exodus 20 for a minute. And notice that before God tells them the commandments, he says to them in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He doesn't say, I will deliver you if you follow these commands. He says, I've already delivered you. Therefore, follow my commands out of love for me and gratitude for what I've done. It's so easy to get this completely backwards. It's so easy to think, if I'm good, God will love me. If I'm good, God will be pleased with me. If I follow the Ten Commandments, God will accept me. But all of this is backwards because the righteousness that makes you acceptable to God is not your own righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ, which has been credited to you if you've accepted him as your Lord. So it's not, I want to live a life that pleases God so that he'll love me. That's not right. It's God already loves me Because of Christ's work, and because of that, I want to live a life that pleases Him. I want to offer my life as a living sacrifice to Him. I want to follow the law, not as a way of avoiding God's wrath, but as an expression of love to my Savior. If this is our attitude, we would never want to be like the Pharisees who made up this Korban law we saw in verse 11, who think that they can just technically keep God's law, even though their hearts don't belong to him. Imagine you're a guy and your girlfriend calls you late, late in the evening and says, hey, today was my birthday. You forgot my birthday. And you say, wait, the day's technically not over. Happy birthday. And I'm going to Amazon Prime you a gift right now. So technically, I got you a gift on your birthday, although it won't arrive right away because it doesn't meet the overnight delivery minimum. But technically, I'm good. Yeah, sorry, man, now you're single. She doesn't want you to technically comply with her expectations. She wants your heart. You see, throughout this passage, Jesus is emphasizing the internal over the external because he wants our hearts. And following the law is what comes out of a heart that belongs to him. The law to you and me is not a list of rules so we can get God off our backs or somehow avoid his wrath. It's a way we can show our love to him and our gratitude for everything he has done for us. You know who understood this really well? David in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is not about someone who obeys God's law technically. It's not just outward for David, but it's inward as well. Look look at how he talks about the law. In Psalm 119, verses 14 to 16, he says, I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. Meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This man rejoiced in the law. He meditated on it. He delighted in it. And so should we. The law is not a burden. The law is a gift because it teaches us about God's heart and what things are offensive to his holiness. We love the law because we love and delight in the one whose heart it reveals. All right, let me uh, conclude. As we go into our series on the Ten Commandments... I hope you have a little bit better understanding of what the law means to us today. I hope it makes sense that we don't follow the whole law of Moses because Christ has come and fulfilled the ceremonial law, and Christ invites us into a kingdom that's not of this world, so we don't follow the civil law. We do still follow the moral law, but not because it will save us. We're saved because we're united to Christ by faith but it is our joy to keep God's law as an expression of love for him. So when we're studying the Ten Commandments, we're not thinking, wow, I better follow these or I'm going to get judgment. No, Romans 8 tells us, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And we're not thinking about them as being a burden or how we can keep them technically when our hearts just want to break them. Instead, we're thinking about what they show us of the heart of God the God that we love, and how they can transform our hearts to be more like his. As we close in prayer now, I'd like us to reflect on how we understand the law. Do you see the law as a burden from someone you fear or as a gift from someone you love? Do you see the law the way the Pharisees did, as a way of making yourself look good externally, but to be observed with technicalities, Or do you see it the way David did when he delighted in it? If your heart needs to change in this area, I ask that you would pray with me silently now as I pray for us. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.